Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. Take two. What's astonishing you? Well, um, I'm astonished in a way that gives me really mixed feelings, both um, joyful and very sad. Um, I got the news last night that one of the most beloved members of our congregation died. Uh, His name is Paul, uh, Paul Cottle. And um, Paul, what I love about Paul, um, who is in his early 80s, is that for the years that I've known him and his reputation has been um, that his his superpower is kindness. Mm. Truly one of the kindest people I have ever met. And I'm talking kindness in, in the sense of the compassionate heart of Jesus, kindness in the mm-hmm. sense of fruit of the spirit. I mean, truly a kind man. And I was talking with his daughter last night, and um, I misspoke. I said to her, our society isn't making men like her father um, much anymore. That is men whose strength really comes out of their kindness. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about Paul this morning as I was getting ready, and I thought, no, it's not that our our society isn't making those men. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the church, church isn't making those kinds yeah. of men. It's, and, and the church um, is gravitating toward this kind of uh, bravado mm-hmm. that is, I think, dishonoring to the kindness and compassion of Jesus. And uh, though I am, I'm very sad um, because when I think of the pantheon of men that I've known, um, Paul, in terms of kindness, definitely in the top three. And his life uh, makes me think about, you know, when I was in my early 20s, I sought um, the help of a spiritual director because in my early 20s, I was really angry. As a matter of fact, um, I was meeting with my CPM. Uh, that's the committee in the Presbyterian Church that oversees your ordination, your your mm-hmm. process of ordination. And I was meeting with my CPM um, um, one winter, fall, uh, my annual meeting with them. And uh, someone on the committee said, you know, you seem really angry. Every time we meet with you, you just seem angry. And she was right. I was just an angry young man. And I remember um, getting the spiritual director for the purpose of dealing with my anger. And uh, my director was uh, a Roman Catholic nun who was just the best thing. And um, I remember just coming to this crossroad in my early 20s, choosing how I was going to show up in the world whether I was going to show up as an angry young man. And (laughs) there is much in the world to be angry about, for sure. But I chose to show up um, 
with kindness and compassion. And that's made all the difference for me and in my relationships. And uh, Paul is that kind of guy. And so I just really appreciated appreciate the life he lived and um, his walk of, of kindness. Yeah. I, it's so interesting that you share this because obviously I didn't know Paul, although I do um, know the experience mm-hmm. of what it's like when a, you know, as the saying goes, like a mighty oak falls in yeah, the congregation. Yeah. Just to, and I think um, it is it it is easy when you're pastoring and when you are part of a community that you you focus a lot on what you do, and that's that's important, right? That's how we express our values and and ultimately our love. Um, but it's easy in the focus on doing to overlook that it is our our being that forms the community and you sometimes it's easy to sort of know people and celebrate them based on their physical physical tangible actions on behalf of the community and I'm grateful for those people and I you know am, am one of them and it it is easy to overlook that really how we shape the community is in our our being and yes. that that is often like invisible and silent work just by, you know, and this is a kind of a duh thing to say out loud, but it's our, our spiritual posture towards the community. It's how we love the community in, in really painful and broken and unlovable moments uh, as well as in the celebratory moments. And sometimes it's this, it's this one of the enemy's greatest tricks to convince us that as long as we're doing our, our being doesn't matter. And yes. like, you just got to get it done. And so you have to, if you have to yell at someone, if you have to cut them down, if you have to cut them out, if you have to belittle them, as long as you get the meals on the table, as long as you, you know, just do what it takes to get the doing done. And that is how we just destroy ourselves. And I think you're, you're so right that, um, we really, our own understanding of what it means to be a Christ-like person, um, male or female, but but particularly, I think it's difficult for men because a lot of the ways, because if Jesus were walking this earth right now, his, his gender identity would be um, derided uh, because he, he did not express his Imago Dei in a way that we prize in masculine culture. He, he um, wasn't trying to be famous. He wasn't trying to build power in the way that the world understands power. He paid attention to people who were not just, um, you know, not just, you know, I think we can look at sort of the Syrophoenician woman or the woman at the well and think like, oh, these are, these are kind of perfect victims. And so we, 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 with the benefit of history can like that. Um, although, you know, the people who play the same roles in our society, we, we don't, we, we call them welfare queens or, you know, trailer trash or whatever. But, but I think, you know, paying attention to Jesus also being in relationship with someone like Zacchaeus, who was part of the power elite structure that was manipulating and exploiting uh, other people in Jesus's community and just how deeply controversial that was. So, I mean, I just think, you know, we don't, we don't teach people, men or women, how to be like Christ. And I think, there is a way in which some of the ways that our culture 
approves of the expression of womanhood do align with authentic expressions of Christ-likeness because our culture does want women to be nurturing and caring mm-hmm. and meek <laughs> um, and and vulnerable. And so those are... Um, I mean, those are authentic expressions of, of Jesus. And so women, I think sometimes can be, um, can have a a counterintuitive advantage, um, over men because a lot of the ways that our culture says men need to show up in the world to be, um, worthy are in direct contradiction to, um, the values of the kingdom and of Christ likeness. And so, yeah, I, I, it's, and it's interesting that you brought up Paul because I just yesterday was reading an essay, which is in, um, the bitter Southerner. And I really recommend it. It's by, um, Jeremy Jones and it's called obituary for a quiet life. And he is writing about the death of his grandfather, who is actually a North Carolinian. And, um, the whole, and it's a beautiful, beautiful essay. And I really recommend people reading it. Obituary for a quiet life, Jeremy Jones. And it is not, um, explicitly about faith, but, um, what I think is really interesting is he's talking about like, how do you capture the essence of a person and specifically a man who by choice chose to remain on the periphery of life and, and did not aspire in our, what our culture says you have to aspire to be. Now, what I also think is super interesting about this essay and, and about Paul, and I'm thinking of, um, a friend of ours, David Hicks, who also, I mean, the Hebrew word of what we're talking about is chesed, Mm -hmm. like steadfast, loving kindness. And the world kind of despises that, but it's what allows, um, the body of Christ to flourish. And without it, we just won't, no matter how efficient or powerful or productive we are. Um, but what's interesting about David, who I know, and and um, this uh, Ray Harrell, who Jeremy Jones writes about, is um, he was kind and like wanted and was a faithful father and mother and didn't want a lot of wealth and was very content, was content, and this is a superpower, was content to do things like sit and watch the breeze on the porch mm-hmm. and, you know, but he also worked as a minor um, and got fired all the time because he was involved in the union and was an organizer and would be told to do, you know, dangerous um, or, you know, unethical things. And he would just refuse and then they, he would get fired and then the union would get him reinstated. And so it's this really balance, I think, and it's really mm-hmm. important for us as mature Christians to be able to discern the difference between nice and kind, yes. compliant and kind, mm-hmm. um, between someone who will disturb the false peace in order to make the true peace. Because this guy, Ray Harrell, was, was kind, had a deep peace and a contentment, and also he was a troublemaker, not because he just wanted to for the sake of doing it, but because he was willing to risk for the sake of the well-being of his neighbors and justice. And I think it's really easy for us to um, close our ears to the prompting of the spirit um, to, to um, advocate, to work, to tell the truth about the suffering and well-being of our neighbors. And it's easy for us to say like, well, that's unkind and like, oh, that's just, you know, distracting and it's um, destructive and it's disruptive and that's not how we talk. And I think it's really important to know like no true kindness understands that ignoring the needs of the weak 
is not kind. Right. And and so, you know, we need to get better because I, on the one hand, like really, I mean, we've talked about your experience on CPM and which is unique. And also, I mean, the process is just hard because of the power imbalance. But I think it's interesting to me to think about you in that process and think you were probably sitting around a table mostly with white people. And on the one hand, you know, the human anger does not produce God's righteousness and, and it's too heavy a burden for any of us to carry. And so I can like, am grateful and appreciative that the members of your committee, um, gave you the gift of saying, Hey, get a spiritual director and let's see if the Lord can help you bear this burden. Um, but I also think it's really important for the people sitting around that table, not to say to you, don't be angry, but to start with like, why are you angry? Like, can we understand how your experience of the world is producing this anger and the anger itself is not a psychological problem. (laughs) It is a rational response to the trauma and the suffering that um, black people and people of color experience. And also in a historically white uh, institution like the PCUSA is, not the body of Christ, (laughs) but the Presbyterian Church USA is a historically white institution to have some sort of holy um, reverence about, wow, someone's experience of the world is very different than mine. And they are, you know, and they are angry before I tell them to get it together. Maybe I should get curious about why. And let's be clear. The committee did not ask me to get a spiritual director. That was, that was my idea. And at 22, 23, I was not interested Yeah, (laughs) because I was so angry. I was not interested in their curiosity. So they could have been curious. I I might not have seen it. I don't think they were. If, if I, if my memory is correct, I, when I, when I heard that statement, I walked away asking myself, is it true? Mm -hmm. And if so, then what am I going to do about Mm -hmm. it? I just think it's really important that kindness is a fruit of the spirit. It Mm -hmm. is, but we need to have the wisdom and maturity to be able to tell the difference between kindness and it's um, like diet cousin of peace mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. or not peace. Sorry. Nice. Nice. Because nice. nice just says you're making me uncomfortable. Stop it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that is not how the body of Christ, the body of Christ would look at someone and say, you're my sibling. You're my neighbor. You are, you know, the other half of God's heart. So I, I want to understand. Um, yes. Nice never tells the truth or right. rarely tells the truth. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And, you know, the, the problem with nice is not just how it um, how it wounds us, but also just the idea that nice is a lie because the reason nice doesn't tell the truth is it it believes that the power and love of God are not sufficient. So it hides the truth because you think like, oh, if I tell the truth, all of this will fall apart. God's goodness is not powerful enough to redeem this truth. Therefore, I need to hide it, maybe even from myself. Mm. And so it's not just a like, oh, we don't treat each other well when we're nice. It is a it is an idol. It's a theological problem. It's saying what I'm afraid of is more powerful than what I say I believe in. And that's why I have to lie. Okay, that just... 
we could talk about so many things mm-hmm. in our society right now because of that. Right. 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 So anyway. So what's astonishing you? Um, yesterday I drove, I, I spent a lot of time driving yesterday, but, um, I drove out to Pineville, um, because that is where the, um, staff for Freedom School are training right now. And so Freedom School is, I, I just want to keep naming, like the, the purpose of astonishment is to train yourself to keep seeing and being grateful for the manifestations of God's goodness in your life. And so the Grove um, is so deeply, deeply, deeply blessed and favored because we um, are a um, host, a partner with Freedom Schools. And so if you've been listening to the pod- podcast for a while, you've maybe heard me talk about this. Um, this is a ministry um, that that traces its roots directly back to the civil rights movement. Um, Marion Wright Edelman, who was a member of the coalition led by uh, King and working with the Poor People's Campaign, out of which came the Children's Defense Fund, which was um, an advocacy organization, which was not is an advocacy organization in Washington, D.C., working for the well-being and justice for the most vulnerable members of our uh, nation who are children. And that's children of of all you know, of every ethnicity, but the most vulnerable children who are the poorest children who disproportionately are um, black and brown, although not completely. Um, And so what um, the Children's Defense Fund does is aim to be a voice at the table um, when policies are being made that will um, affect children, which is, you know, all of them. Um, But they have one programmatic expression of their work, which is called Freedom Schools, which is named Freedom Schools, um, to tie back to the Freedom Schools movement in the 60s when people of faith and people who um, were advocates for justice came down into the South to um, equip and empower disenfranchised Black Americans to pass the illegal and unjust poll tests that was a way that white Americans prevented black Americans from voting by saying like if you can't pass this literacy test if you can't pass this history test if you can't prove that you understand how our government works you can't vote now these same tests were not given to white voters um and so you know because they were law the law of the land um people of faith came down and set up freedom schools to say all right if you have to pass these tests then we're gonna um, work with you and equip you um, so that you have what you need to pass them. And it was really an insidious plan because one of the things that black Americans didn't have access to was public education. So to say, no, you cannot have a public education past the sixth grade. And even what you get to that point will be vastly inferior, even though you pay taxes at the same rate as white Americans. And then because you haven't had a public education, we'll tell you that you're not smart enough to be um, a voting member of our democracy, but you can be a taxed member and a incarcerated and enslaved member. But anyway, um, so the the modern there are many modern day manifestations of the way that um these demonic um powers and principalities of white supremacy get expressed in our culture legally um and the disparity between education is definitely part of them um tying public schools to um real estate taxes is a is a really 
brilliant way, um, shrewd way to make sure that disenfranchised people stay disenfranchised. Um, but freedom schools exist to, to close what's called the summer learning, uh, the summer slide, the summer learning gap that poor children and um, economically advantaged children um, statistically learn at the same rate during the school year. Um, but over the summers, um, economically disadvantaged children tend to lose half a grade level. And so over the course of 13 summers, that cumulatively results in a huge difference between economically advantaged children and economically disadvantaged children. And so Freedom Schools aims to come in and step in the gap by being like a really um, dynamic, spirit-filled, culturally competent literacy summer camp. I would add fun. I mean, it's so, it's so joyful and fun and brilliant, and it's really intentionally designed to um, celebrate um, the the image of God, the God-given um, identity of these children, and particularly of, of the communities that they come out of to help them um, celebrate and deeply um, uh, incarnate their own lived history as um as liberated and liberating people, as as people who can um, be um, peacemakers and shalom makers in the world. Anyway, we get to be a site, which is an amazing, amazing, amazing gift. Um, and part of the model of Freedom Schools is that um, the the individual like classes, like sort of cabins, it's not an overnight thing, but um, are led by um, servant leader interns. So they're not counselors, they're servant leader interns. And those servant leader interns are college students of color. Um, so that children in these classrooms um, see you know, people who look just like them who are in the middle of their college careers and just sort of really normalizing um, college as an option, uh, a really attainable, achievable, worthy option for kids. Um, but so um, yesterday I drove out to Pineville where our current um, le leaders are being trained because there's 15 all over, there's 15 camps, freedom schools all over the city of Charlotte. And so our, our kids, our not our kids, our college students, servant leader interns were there being trained and I ate lunch with them. And I am just so astonished to get to be part of this movement of the spirit. I'm so astonished that we get to um, just play a role in like being the physical ground where it happens and support um, in, in the ways that we get to and, and sitting at the table with these young people and just talking to them about their their goals and their whys and like what they want in the summer and just hearing them talk about how they want, you know, every child, every scholar to know, um, you know, unconditional belonging, to know kindness, to know that they are seen and, and loved for the unique gifts that they have, that their, you know, challenges and weaknesses are, you know, don't define them, but also are just different ways that their gifts will, um, unfurl like and it's just it's the gospel like it's the gospel and so I just you know I don't want to um, get calloused to the fact you know and I was sitting next to young one young woman who was like oh my gosh I I just got this book and can I show it to you and it was a book about you know just incarnational living and um, and how to live out walk out of faith in Jesus and I it just it's beautiful to me and you know the job market is is doing well and these college students I mean they I think Freedom Schools does a, a really excellent job of making sure that these kids 
um, get a livable wage when they work hard the summer because they, you know, because they need to go back and be able to support themselves. But these young people could all be, you know, doing things where they would earn more money. They could be doing things where they were, you know, getting internships that would set them up to, you know, and so to see them come back, to circle back and pour into young people and just, and, and the, just beauty and the purity of, you know, I am here this summer for these scholars. Like I am here for them, not for me. And I, and, um, it just is, um, you know, whole, you just want to take off your shoes, right? It's holy ground. And I think, you know, it's just another manifestation of the, the mission of the kingdom of God is so beautiful. It's so beautiful and so compelling. Um, and when we share it, it is attractive. So, um, it was astonishing you know, my ministry coach uh, that I had a few re- few years ago, uh, Tom Bandy, told me that um, what people are hungry for in our time are spiritual companions, people that are slightly ahead of them, mm-hmm. certainly not perfect, but slightly ahead of them in terms of maturity and can help them get to where they are, can mm-hmm. walk with them. And um, that's what I love about the Freedom School program. I, I think that's um, um, not only beautiful, but it it has more power than we realize. Mm-hmm. When I think about my own coming out of high school, <laughs> the the thing that compelled my passion to go to college more than anything was this show on television called A Different World. Oh, yeah. And it was all about yeah. this black college experience. And I was mm-hmm. like, okay, yeah, I'm, whatever that is, I'm, I I'm, I'm, I'm going yeah. to that kind of school, right? Um, so, yeah, I, I just think it's a powerful thing to have those college kids just uh, be in relationships with those um, um, young folks and set an example for them. Yeah, and just to clarify, it's not that we feel like every young person has to go to college. Sure, that that sure. that's not the thing. But for every young person to deeply know the the power and beauty of their potential, mm. that their lives matter, that they matter, that they have something good and beautiful and transformative to offer to the world. Um, and, and just this idea and, you know, the, one of the themes in the program is every week there's a different theme. So it's, I can make a difference in myself. I can make a difference in my family. I can make a difference in my school. I can make a difference in my community. I can make a difference in my nation and I can make a difference with like hope and intelligence and love. Maybe I don't remember the sixth week, but anyway, and it's just that idea that like, not only are you just inherently worthy, but you have a gift to offer to the world that will change the world. And, you know, again, what, what the culture says is world changing and what the kingdom says is world changing is different. Absolutely. And so, but, but to say, regardless of what your path is, you need to know that your life and how you show up for it is precious and it matters and, and that it will make a difference one way or the other. Um, and so unleashing that for um, those children is, I mean, and, and obviously the spirit's already at work in their lives. I mean, already at work in their lives. But but to be another voice, um, just telling that truth to them is a deep honor. So anyway, I'm I'm astonished and happy. And I think this conversation is a really <laughs> seamless transition to what we were hoping to talk about. 
today. What we're thinking about. What we're thinking about. We're thinking right. about the same thing. Yes. So yes. let's let's get into it. Um, so there's a lot of um, media uh, product right now around um, a church called Hillsong Church, which was founded in Australia, and this is a um, a very large church, global church, thirty countries. Um, and there's right now there's documentaries, there's podcasts, there's been a lot of news because, um, leaders have gotten into very, um, public scandals is the only word that you can use. Um, and, and so people are trying to tell the story and make sense of it. Um, members of the church are sharing their stories of what it was like to be part of that community. And, um, and I, so I was watching um, one of the documentaries and there were just things that were really interesting to me that I felt like we should talk about. Um, and also, I just want to say kind of the first question that that people might be asking is like, well, is it, it should should these stories be told? Is this wrong? I mean, some people who are pushing back against the documentaries are saying like, oh, these are you know, these are attacks on Christianity and these are out of bounds and like no institution is perfect. And why, why is this church being dragged? Um, and, and, you know, and then there are also people on the other side who um, are, are very happy to uh, both, and I'm talking about in the body of Christ, um, who are very happy to see this church get um, quote exposed. And, um, you know, I think that it's important to just accept that, you know, we are people who, who Jesus said, you're the light of the world. Um, you're sitting on a hill. You're the salt of the earth. And so to, to sort of say both that's true about us and also no one's allowed to talk about us, like these, you, that's not, that's just illogical, right? So if we are who we say we are, then um, the world can and should and will be watching and we need to know that and not in a sense that like we should be fake or lying but but to say like oh no fair like no fair that a church which said and, and I'm not mad at this but a church which explicitly said we are going to be global we are going to change the world and again coming from within the context of you know the body of Christ I understand that that's not necessarily something that would be followed by a like evil villain, maniacal laugh. Um, but, um, but you can't both say we aim to change the world and also how dare the world talk about us. You know, people are going to want, people are going to want to tell the story both inside and outside of the body of Christ. And I just think that's, that's fair. And I think what, you know, what is true. And I think a little bit like your story about the CPM tells us this, that the, a person, a Christian institution or a church doesn't have to like come off well in order to be a catalyst for somebody's growth and healing. Right. So, um, I think, is it fair to talk about Hillsong? Absolutely. Like it, it's fair to talk about any, any community which bears the name of Christ and to ask the questions, like what does it look like and, and what, what's beautiful here and what's um, troubling here and how do we make sense of it and how does this or does this not bear witness and glorify the name of Jesus. Um, and so I'll just say like kind of my, my two top takeaways is on the one hand, 
Um, and I've only watched a little, I've watched like two and a half episodes. Um, but it was interesting to me, the first episode, um, that, so Hillsong is really known for its music and, um, we sing a lot of Hillsong music at the Grove and it, it's good. Like the music is very good. It's compelling. It's dynamic. Like the, you know, the, the music that we sing theologically is, is just solid. It's just, I mean, it, it, it pulls phrases and words straight from scripture and then um, uses, you know, not a lot. It's not too wordy. I think this is the challenge sometimes with hymns is it's like you, you've said a theology lesson to <laughs> tune, <laughs> but um, you know, it, it pulls those images from scripture and then in very simple ways sets them in people's lives. So it gets people thinking about if I'm praying the 23rd Psalm, what what does that mean when I walk around, when I go to the grocery store? Like what, like what does it mean? And so I, I just find it music that's really helpful for discipleship and spiritual formation. It's music that um, is simple and easy to sing by design. And as somebody, I've talked about this a lot, but as somebody who came sort of through the um, institutions of like serious, excellent musicianship that tends to get despised and looked down on like that music's so simple. You can sing it the very first time, like what losers, but like that's by design so that when people come in, they can join the song so that it's portable and that, and you know, I don't despise that. Um, and also it is, it's passionate music. It, it is designed to connect, to be heart songs. Um, and it was interesting, especially in the first episode, you know, people were talking about that and, and just from the way that they, you know, journalists and media folks, you know, they, they were speaking about it with some skepticism, like, oh, this church just, you know, they just get people to write music that will stick with you, that will, you know, chord swells and chord progressions and it produces emotion in the room. And, and sort of the, the subtext was like, this is manipulative and this is um, unethical and this is exploitive. And, and I just want to say to start, like, people are allowed to write the most beautiful music they can, mm -hmm. right? Um, and people who want, who, who sing songs and write songs are trying to to communicate and share what is most deeply true in their hearts and that's not a crime and so you know there are a lot of things about Hillsong um, that I think are are um, prob are broken <laughs> and unhealthy um, but but the fact that the music is good is not an indictment. And I think sometimes people coming from more traditional kinds of worship services that are not as good at connecting with outsiders and are not as the music you might know and love, um, you know, is, is maybe not as accessible or, or meaningful to people who are not generationally part of your community um, can can sort of channel that longing into a judgment. And I just think. No, we need to learn from that. Like the the message of Jesus is compelling and comforting and invigorating and exciting and encouraging and strengthening. And and so the music should be as well. And it's not um, bad that they write songs that people love to sing. Um, the thing that I think is deeply problematic about Hillsong is not, you know, its founder saying, you know, we want to make a difference in everyone's life. It's not the founder saying like, we want to, um, 
you know, give people a mission and a vision that's worth giving everything for. Cause you and I just said that, right? right. So like that, that's just authentic Christ talk. What, what is the problem is some of the expression of it is like, you know, you have these, um, get worship gatherings that have VIP sections. And I'm like, Oh, friends, like, have you not read Paul's letter to the Corinthians? Like literally you're seating people and giving people access in uh, proportion to your perceived understanding of their worth and value. Like that's just antichrist. There's no other way. There's no other way to express that. And I don't, I mean, whatever. I'm not pretending if Justin Bieber came to my church, I think it would mess with my head as well. Right. So I just think like, that's a tough thing to, to, I mean, and this is what Jesus says all the time, like power and wealth are stumbling blocks for followers of Jesus. They're not advantages. They are disadvantages. It's really hard to steward them well. So praise be to God for keeping me (laughs) weak and powerless. I, you know, but I don't, I don't have any like despising in my heart towards brothers and sisters who I think, you know, I'm willing to give the benefit of the doubt. Absolutely. And just to say like, Oh, this, this got tripped up there. Um, and then also, and and more fundamentally, and just needs to be named, you know, they have a they have a patriarchal hierarchical understanding of righteousness um, that is anathema to the gospel. It is it is the very system that Jesus came to overturn, and they have reinforced it in the name of Jesus, or or, or more specifically Paul. So you know, they're they're telling people that you know. Um, all that matters is all that matters is women's sexual purity. They're saying that, you know, there are certain roles that are exclusively reserved for men so that men can be an authority over women. Um, there's just, just lots of purity culture stuff that is um, manipulative and exploitive and, um, and creates an, an environment where vulnerable people get abused. And, and that is what has happened. There's been, um, child abuse and, um, sexual assaults and, and, you know, is it possible that every single person who is telling their story, every single victim is lying, every single one of them is lying. I mean, I suppose that is theoretically possible. Um, but you know, there's, there's firsthand evidence and you see it that, you know, the people involved have admitted that the stories are true. And the reality is, um, it just was, it, it, you know, that the devil's good at his job. And so particularly when there's just lots of explosive growth and lots of wealth and lots of prestige and power, it's easy for people to think, oh, this, this is how God is redeeming the world. And so anything, like, let's just be nice. Let's sweep the bad stuff under the rug so that the more important good stuff can keep going. And then what we're saying is the opinion of the culture is more important than the abuse of a child. And that is not how the kingdom measures things. And so, you know, I just think it's important for us to know, again, that what we do matters. And also the way that we do it matters more. And um, there's nothing worse in the world than to be small and poor and unimportant. Like the world says, you are garbage trash, if those are what describe you. But those are words that describe Jesus. And so if we don't understand that the power of God can be manifested through small, through powerless, through weakness, through um, despised and dishonored people, if we don't understand that, then we don't know our own story and we don't have anything to offer the world. 
Yeah, like you, my introduction to Hillsong Church was through the music, and I adopted it early, early on. Like, I was, gosh, like college age. Shout I mean, to the Lord Yes, age. <laughs> way back, way back, way back. Um, but, you know, after about 10 years, I left it because it, it did start, you know, all of it started to sound the same after a while. But I didn't. I never disliked it. I just moved on to other things. Um, but uh, these podcasts and documentaries have really disturbed me. I just think the the culture that was created in that church highly toxic. And as I was listening to um, uh, one podcast, I listened to the series called Faith on Trial, Hillsong Church. Um, I found myself, okay, nerd alert, okay. Um, I thought about being in high school and reading the Canterbury Tales. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And back in its day, what, the 13th, 14th century, the Canterbury Tales were highly controversial. Yeah. Why? Because Chaucer called out in those stories the hypocrisy the self-enrichment, um, the abuse of the church then. And those stories were right, and the church needed to repent and change. Mm -hmm. And I think these documentaries and uh, podcasts are doing the same thing for the church today. And I find it really disturbing uh, to hear those in the evangelical church dismiss much of what is being said uh, by saying, oh, well, this is just liberal bias. This is uh, folks coming after the church. And maybe there is some of that. But I, but more than that, what needs to be said by the church is we have a problem. Well, particularly because that's what we yeah. wanted the Roman church, the Roman Catholic right. church to say, listen, we see something in you that is not just wrong. This is disturbing. Disturbing. This is toxic. This is antichrist. And for you to gloss over it, for you to make excuses for it, for you to say, uh, let's just kind of rearrange the the chairs on the Titanic. No. Right. Well, and I just think it's it's really interesting, the defensiveness of like, oh, this is just the liberal media attack to say like, but but your the message that you've been telling the world for the last I mean, 70 years is nothing matters more than sexual purity. Nothing matters more than sexual purity. And so for now for you to say like, well, that's true when it comes to sex before marriage. That's true when it comes to homosexuality. It's true when it comes to gender expressions and transgenderism. But when one of our pastors um, fondles a child, well, now you're just a liberal bias trying to attack us. Like that, this is just the world saying, hey, you know, we disagree with your understanding about, I mean, I think by and large, the culture, I think, is ahead of the church when it comes to um, understanding, beginning to develop a sexual ethic, beginning to develop a sexual ethic that honors God. And that's an astonishing statement to say. But I believe that the culture is ahead of the church in beginning to articulate and develop a sexual uh, ethic that honors God. I recognize what I just said. Um, well, listen, that's not new historically. Correct. Like, I mean, absolutely. The the yeah. the the, uh, the culture, the world, the society was ahead of the church when it came to understanding the relation of 
planet Earth to the sun. Well, and of, you know, uh, the full personhood of women and the end of with the with the perhaps exception of like the Puritans and the Shakers with abolitionism. I mean, like the, the church is often, again, trying to hold on to its power and influence and wealth. And so, um, you know, because justifying somehow injustice. the church falls into the trap of tying the core of its faith, the gospel of Jesus, to power and influence in society. Right. And I hear and here's like here's and, my and, nerd alert. You know, it's it's just you know, it's just Constantine straight up, right? So like before what, thir- three thirteen, uh Anno Dominum before that date, it took great courage and risk and faith to be a Christian. Being a Christian marked you as being set apart, as being deviant, as being a blasphemer, as being a weirdo member of a cult where they talked about eating the body and drinking the blood of their leader. Like it was like disgusting in the eyes of the world. Then Constantine converts and in an instant it becomes dangerous and risky not to be a Christian, right? So the Christian church goes from the fringe, from the margins, from, you know, the crosshairs of the dominant power structures of the day to controlling those dominant power structures of the day. And so, you know, when the devil comes to Jesus in the desert and says, hey, here's another way for you to be the ruler of the world. Just, you know, turn these stones into bread, jump off this tower and everyone will be impressed and, and God will protect you and I'll give you power over every kingdom and political structure on earth. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way the kingdom of God will come. And essentially, 313 years later, the devil came to the church, the body of Christ, and made the same offer. Like, hey, come on in here. You can control the empire. You can have the power to satisfy your every desire. And you can have absolute power and control over all people um, through threat of violence. And the church says, sounds great. Sign us up. And so we have been betraying the values of the kingdom of God in order to hold control and be God in Jesus's name ever since then. And so, you know, this is the challenge when Hillsong has to make a choice of like, oh, if Justin Bieber comes to our church, that's going to get a lot of eyeballs. That's going to get a lot of news stories. That's going to get a lot of attention and that'll bring more people in. And then more people will hear our amazing music and our amazing sermons. And they're both, um, And so let's do what we need to do to make sure these celebrities are comfortable. So let's, you know, set them up front and apart. And, you know, not only is it, um, you know, just a betrayal of the explicitly articulated values of the body of Christ, like what does it matter to share the gospel if you're not living as the body of Christ? But it's also a betrayal of those people who come in and don't find a new identity as a follower of Jesus. They still have the same toxic understandings of their own self-importance are elevated you know like it, it's spiritual malpractice to those people like be, who are not celebrities in the eyes of God and you know so I I just think it, it's just really important that we understand that there's something you know when the church was marginalized and powerless and it took risk to be part of the community and great sacrifice it spread like wildflower fire people wildflowers probably more than fire <laughs> you know people were drawn to the vision of loving their neighbor and finding the joy in being out for one another's good and the power in that which was not the power 
to Coerce. control. <laughs> um, it, it was really the power to say there's there's nothing I'm afraid of. And then once people in the church got power, they became afraid of everything and anything that would they lose them what they gained. And so we have to be a people who don't seek suffering, who don't seek loss. We don't have to be masochists, but we have to be a people who understand that our real and only treasure is our presence in the house of the Lord. That's where our life comes from. And it can't be taken from us. That's, you know, Teresa of Avila's interior castle, right? Like I carry my castle inside of me. And so I can't be separated from God and one another. That's Paul sitting in the prison cell being like, if I live, I live to the Lord. If I die, I die to the Lord. I don't really know what's going to happen. I guess I want to stay here because it means I can, what? Serve you. Mm -hmm. But other than that, like it's all good. Like that kind of freedom and power and joy is transformative but the power to hold elected office the power to say do this or i'll kill you do this or i'll kick you out of the community i'll shame you i'll reject you like that that's just the same old stuff that the devil's been recycling since cain killed abel yeah and what's breaking my heart about um you know the situation this the fallout uh from Hillsong ministry from Australia to New York is that there are people who are leaving the faith because they are leaving this part of the church as part of the body of Christ. And um, because the two, that is the faith and the Hillsong experience are so tied together that in order to leave Hillsong, they have to leave, they feel like they have to leave the faith. And I I hope, I pray that there's, there comes a time when they can uh, distinguish the two, because I believe to my core that Jesus is Messiah. He is savior of the world, that the kingdom of God has been made manifest in his death and resurrection. And I also believe that the church is the, the body of Christ, the manifestation of what God intends for the world. And I believe that the church is made up of flawed people and that there are times when the, when the culture of the church becomes very talk, I, I keep saying toxic, but I'm going to use the biblical word sinful and, um, and in its sin, it destroys and dehumanizes. And that's why I think it's really important that the culture of the church isn't based on the culture. I mean, of the church, right? Yeah. Like when the church is trying to grow itself, when the church is trying to save itself, when the church is trying to like store up for its own future, that's when the focus of the church becomes the institution and becomes the church. And that's where yeah. things go wonky. When the focus of the church is Jesus, when we're always asking the question, who is Jesus? What are Jesus's values? How can we embody them in ways that do not make sense yeah. in the world, right? Like how can we be faithful knowing that it might cost us our future institutionally or individually and like want that, not be compelled, not be forced, but to say like, if Jesus is about you know, Matthew 25 values. If Jesus is about the, you know, the, the, what Jesus said in his very first sermon, like I, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and I have come to proclaim good news to the poor and freedom to the captives and release to the oppressed and recovery of sight to the blind. If that's what Jesus is about, then how can the spirit lead us to be about that? And we don't need to worry about whether we survive as an individual because I am forever caught up in the love of God eternally or as an institution, because my church is not the body of Christ. 
right? My yes. church, and I'm not loyal to my church. I am loyal to Jesus, so I can hold it lightly. So, I mean, the reality is we don't have to be anything other than when we are. And, and if, you know, we get, if we mess up, we know what to do. We know how to repent. We know how to tell the truth. We know how to make amends. We need, we know how to not protect ourselves because the reality is not in a way that would be, um, victim shaming, but like to be able to say, I don't have to lie about who I am because my whole connection to Jesus came not out of the premise of how can I be healthy, wealthy, and wise, but like, what can I do with my broken self? How can I find love and belonging? Um, not because of, but also in spite of who I am, I can seek forgiveness from Jesus. And so I, I should be practiced as that. And to know that even if I look like an ass, Jesus can still be glorious savior and me telling my story can be part of that. Um, and that's, we got to stop trying to protect our reputation. Yeah. Let me name some of my takeaways thus far. One, having a celebrity pastor is a problem. Mm -hmm. Is it, is if, a danger. Is a, is a is liability. A danger. Yes. That's probably better put is a danger. Um, I, I've heard that um, the pastor of Hillsong, New York, Carl Lentz, um, always had yes people around. Like yeah. if your pastor cannot hear no from time to time, yeah. I'm not saying say no just to spite, whatever, but if your pastor cannot receive a genuine, we have discerned no, right. that, that's a danger. Yeah. Right. Warning flag right there. Because every pastor ought to know that they can be wrong. Yes. Yes. And that there is wisdom in the larger body. Yeah. Right. Two, my second takeaway. I am now, I think for the first time, really questioning the tax exempt status of the church. I'm 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 wondering if that is another leftover from our um our Constantinian hangover when the church yeah. was you know in power the most influential institution besides government and what what does that tax exempt status say about us um and I I'm not sure if that should remain in place. Well, here's what I think is interesting. I mean, I do think that charitable contributions, I, I don't know that I think that charities should pay taxes, but I do think that like Hillsong in particular, one of the things that I was watching is they formed a lot of limited liability corporations. And if you're forming, if you're a corporation, then you pay taxes. Like yeah. I don't, like that's the, the bottom line. And so I do think, you know, I, I do think, and, and churches are sometimes lax about this, um, you know, I, I have been encouraged over the course of my ministry career to claim the majority of my salary as housing expenses, because as a pastor, you don't, for whatever reason, you don't pay taxes on your housing expense. So, and, you know, and I've had to say like, look, no, you don't understand. Like, this is how much my mortgage is. This is how much my rent is. So times 12, that's all I can claim. And so I'm not like, I'm not going to try to, it's not cute to cheat the government. And like churches who are, are not thoughtful about, um, 
yes, we have a tax exempt status, but if you invite a for-profit business into your church, um, then, then you are not operating as a church, you know, you are a landlord and you have to pay taxes on that. And to understand that, like, yes, we are not perhaps, you know, faith-based institutions should have, and when they're operating as charities, should have that break, but not if they're exploiting that status in order to not pay what other secular institutions are paying to do that same work. Like that's, that, that is, um, you know, really misusing, that's not the kind of power we're supposed to have. We're not supposed to have the power to get away with stuff. Um, and, and also, you know, I'm a big believer in civil disobedience, but civil disobedience is public. Like if a church is going to break the law because what we're saying is the law is unjust, then you break that publicly and you rejoice in whatever consequence you pay because it allows you to tell the story of the values of the community. But, you know, to say like, well, we're not going to get audited so we can be shady with our accounting and, and keep it hush hush. Like that's not civil disobedience. That's just being a thief. Yes, I agree. Um, a third takeaway. The church must learn how to apologize. Yeah. How to say, we are sorry. We have harmed you. Uh, you know, I don't know if there's anyone listening to this podcast who has been, you know, wounded by the church uh, abused by the church, but you know, here are two church leaders who, you know, we are sorry on behalf yeah. of the larger church. We we hope and pray that um, th there is is healing um, and uh, sorry for the sin of the church because that's what it is. Right, and it's not that we're like people will sometimes push back and go like, oh well, you know, Christians are people like everyone else, and we're not perfect. We're forgiven, and okay, but you're not forgiven for things that you refuse to admit happened yeah. right yeah. and i and i think this is the problem like and this is the problem with sexual purity culture mm -hmm. ultimately the whole concept of human righteousness is based on the idea that you have to meet these purity codes or else it's you can't recover from it so then when their leaders violate those codes they can't tell the truth about that because they basically said the gospel says there's two kinds of people good people and garbage people and garbage people are sexual deviants and they can't be they, they can't be fixed they can't be redeemed god does not want them so if a leader's behavior has you know has falls into that kind of sin it can't you know you got to be you can't tell the truth about it because you think that Jesus Christ cannot redeem that person and that's because you have known that person not as a redeemed sinner but as a proxy god and that is a challenge like part of you know and this is why i think it needs to be nuanced like there's no joy in mudville that um hillsong has whatever has fallen I mean that that's that's well, heartbreaking. I don't think it's fallen. Well, I think it's I'm troubled. Yes, I has mean, been exposed. At, like that's, I think that's accurate. Yes, and I and I think there's nothing there's nothing there's no good news for anybody in that. Correct. And and it's a Correct. it's a tragedy. And I think for for Christians to want to soberly say like what can we understand about this? Not about 
what's wrong with Hillsong, but also what's wrong with us. With us. Like what what's going on in yes. my congregation that might not have the same fruit or the same visibility, but comes out of the same root of misunderstanding what the glory of God looks like. So I listened to an interview of a woman who is part of Hillsong, New York. And she said something like, and I'm totally paraphrasing here, something like the dysfunction in the lead pastor made it okay. It was never explicitly stated, but the vibe was his dysfunction made it okay for the leaders under him to walk in similar, if not same dysfunction. So you normalize um, your, your, your dysfunction in the church. And as a church leader myself, that is terrifying. Yeah. Because I, when, when, when the room is quiet and um, it's me and the Lord, I see the shadows in my own soul. And it terrifies me to think that in some way my dysfunction might be infused into the DNA of the congregation. But that is a possibility, and we've got to acknowledge that. Well, and I do think, and then I we need to go because my eighth grader is graduating from eighth grade. I got to get there. But, um, the, I, I do think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of talk, I, I think healthy talk that I was often dismissive about, you know, how pastors need to really, um, just like deeply sink into their own, um, spiritual health. And I think it's not that I ever felt like that was not important. Like, obviously I've always known that it matters to be a person of integrity and to, you know, set aside time for um, just prayer and spiritual direction and like thinking and, but, you know, but I've also, there's also been a voice whispering in my ear saying like, why do you get that privilege? Right? Like nobody else gets to go to work and get paid to think about their own spiritual health. And so like, who do you think you are trying to, you know, and I do think it's really helpful to be able to understand like, look, I, I'm, I'm not better. I'm not more important. I, but I, but my um, spiritual health because of the role that I play in the church is more likely to harm, wound, or bless than a person in the community who plays a different role. And that is not a matter of maturity. It's not a matter of giftedness. It's not a matter of any of the ways that we would rank and choose and prioritize people in the world. Like the role of pastor is not more important, but it is distinct. And so to be able to say, like, if if we're not super intentional, um, I think ma- mainly in the way that like if you're an NFL football player, you're not allowed to go water skiing, right? Because you can't because you getting hurt like that risk if somebody if an accountant goes water skiing and breaks their leg like that's not gonna really long term hurt the well-being of the institution that the accountant serves but if a pastor is so busy like doing things and showing up in the world in a particular way that you don't have time to practice like 
Sabbath and you don't have time to practice deep prayer and you don't have time to practice like, you know, the daily offices. You don't make time to do that because you think like, who am I if other people don't get to do it? Like that's just a backdoor way that the enemy of our communities can, can, can destroy us. And to say like, it's, I, we are not more important, but we have to understand that like, if you're a pilot of an airplane, you can't have a beer before you get on and fly the airplane. If you're a flight attendant, like maybe not ideal, but not the same level of risk. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And so I think, you know, that's, I think what is, there's so many levels of tragedy in the situation. And obviously the people who are most destroyed, not destroyed because no one is destroyed, but I mean, the people who are most deeply wounded are, are the folks who came in seeking the goodness of God and were exploited by people who claimed not only the name of God, but sometimes even the, the power and identity of God in those communities. And that's, that kind of not just physical because it's not just physical abuse. It's not just sexual abuse. It's spiritual abuse. And that is, um, those people and their pain and trauma, you know, they need to be centered in our communities and we need to do that without demonizing the people who harmed them. Because when we demonize those people, that's a convenient way for us to say, this has nothing to do with me. Correct. Uh, well, thanks for listening to us this week. And uh, if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, Derida Presbyterian, D-E-R-I-T-A, pres.faithlifesites.org, or go to their podcast, or go to their YouTube channel, or join them for worship every Sunday morning in Derida at Charlotte at 11 o'clock, where the dress code is, wear clothes. Wear clothes. Wear clothes. Um, and if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, The Grove, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter, which goes straight to your inbox, really actually to your spam folder, but you can fish it out. And you can check out our podcast, our YouTube channel, um, live streaming on Facebook, or you can come and join us for worship at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 5735 East W.T. Harris Boulevard, where the dress code is wear clothes. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.